0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word in your hands now, and let's turn to the New Testament book of Luke. Luke chapter 23 and our text today, verses 13 through 25. Title of the message, Pilate Violates His Conscience. You remember that uh, the suffering of Jesus began shortly after he left that borrowed upper room there in Jerusalem, where they had taken the Passover meal together. Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper They sung a hymn, and then they went through the eastern gate of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, and there they retired for the evening in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. There Jesus committed himself to prayer, and he told his disciples to pray and to watch, and they failed miserably. They went to sleep while Jesus was praying agonizing prayers, anticipating the next day where the weight of the world's sin would be placed upon him at the cross, Having risen from prayer victoriously, he met Judas at the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane, and he had behind him a throng of men, perhaps as many as a thousand. They were armed to the teeth, and they were treating Jesus as if he were an armed insurrectionist. They arrested Jesus, and they took him to the house of the patriarch of the high priestly family, a man by the name of Annas, where he was interrogated. From there, he went to Caiaphas's house, and when the sun was about to rise, the Jewish Supreme Court gathered, and this was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had already determined Jesus' guilt and to put him to death even before the proceedings started. And they made up some trumped-up charges and knew that they did not have the legal authority to execute a prisoner. So they proceeded down the street to the praetorium, which was the residence of the Roman governor, Pilate. I suspect they roused him from sleep in the very early morning. And uh, they began to say that they wanted this man, Jesus put to death. Pilate had some duties to fulfill. First, he had to hear an indictment and they recited three charges, one more flimsy than the next. The, The only one that had any teeth was the third charge that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. That was not illegal of course, because Jesus was and is the Messiah. And yet they disbelieved that, and they demanded that Pilate put him to death. Pilate uh, brought Jesus into his home privately, and he questioned him there, and he realized right away that this man was innocent, that he was not guilty of anything, approaching worthy of capital punishment. He came back out and says, I find no guilt in this man. And he thought that would be the end of the matter. He underestimated their tenacity and their depravity. They began to put pressure on him, and they had him in a corner because, remember, He was already on probation with his bosses back in Rome for previous insurrections. One more event like this and likely his career as a politician would be over. So he began to try to find ways out of this corner. He heard that Jesus was a Galilean and he remembered that Herod who was the Tetrarch or the ruler of Galilee was visiting up the street. And so he says, this is not my jurisdiction. Take this to Herod. And so they went down the street with Jesus to the chambers of Herod Antipas, who was even more wicked than Pilate. And Herod was actually glad to see Jesus. He had wanted to see Jesus perform some sign or miracle. He wanted to be entertained by Jesus, and Jesus wouldn't play along with that. In fact, Jesus didn't say a word to Herod, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy like a sheep to slaughter. He uttered, not a word. So Herod Herod used Jesus as a a plaything he allowed his men and the crowd that was gathering to jeer and to make fun of Jesus. He had one of his robes brought out and they placed it upon Jesus and they played him for a fool. And then they sent him away. Herod obviously couldn't find anything wrong in Jesus either. So he sends him back to Pilate. Pilate, if he thought that he could extricate himself from this political sticky wicket by passing the book to Herod knew he had uh, thought wrongly when he saw the Sanhedrin and Jesus coming back up the street. That's what brings us to the 13th verse now of Luke 23. Pilate summoned the chief priests and rulers of the people and said to them, 'You, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion and behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod for he sent him back to us and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast, one prisoner. But they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city. and was a murderer and Pilate wanting to release Jesus addressed them again, but they kept on calling out saying, crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why? What evil has this man done? I found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. And he delivered Jesus to their will. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now you have to remember that. All the events that I've described this morning from the garden of Gethsemane, all the way up to the second trial before Pilate happen in a space of less than 12 hours, just one right after the other. And still only seven or eight o'clock in the morning, likely when Pilate has to deal with Jesus the second time. And by that time of day, in the early morning, the sun was up. The citizens of Jerusalem would be stirring about, word was moving from the city rapidly that Jesus had been arrested, a large throng had gathered already outside of the Praetorium. And so Pilate was on the horns of a dilemma. He knew he had to make a difficult decision. Would he put an innocent man to death or would he risk his own political future? But Pilate was rather shrewd. He was not out of ideas yet. He thought perhaps he could come to some compromise with the Sanhedrin even yet So his first thought was, I'll just give Jesus a beating. Maybe that will satisfy the mob. Now he says here showing his own hypocrisy and duplicity that I have found him innocent, nothing deserving of death. Therefore I will punish him. (laughs) That's uh, incongruous, isn't it? That a judge would find a person guilty and then pronounce a sentence. He thought he was being magnanimous, I'm sure, by not killing Jesus, just beating him. By the way, when he says, I will beat him, don't think a slap or two. This is the word for scourging. This is taking a man and tying him to a post or a pillar, stripping him naked and beating within an inch of his life with a leather whip, which was intertwined with glass and nails and things intended to rip flesh. But he thought, I'll let them have a little taste of blood and that will satisfy them. And they said, no, that will not satisfy us. And so he went to a second plan. He says, well, this is Passover time. And historically, the Roman governors released to the Jewish population, one of their own who's in prison as an act and a gesture of kindness. It was a way to curry favor of the people and keep them satisfied. And he thought, surely they'll ask for Jesus. He's done nothing serious. He had, on the other hand, a man in his prison who is described variously in the New Testament as a robber, a murderer, and basically a domestic terrorist. This was a man who was a threat not only to the Roman empire, which was Pilate's interest in keeping him behind bars, but he was a danger to society in general. And yet they would rather have a known killer loose among them than have Jesus go free. So what was Pilate doing? Well, he was betting on the people of Jerusalem being reasonable and doing the logical thing. If there's anything I've learned in 49 years of life, a person will go absolutely broke betting on human beings to do the reasonable and logical thing, especially when they've been whipped up into an emotional frenzy. And that's what was happening. As we read this text, as it unflows as it unfolds verse after verse and chapter after chapter leading up to the cross, it's like a snowball gathering momentum and mass as it heads downhill. People are coming in, someone shouts something, someone else tops it. It goes on and on until the crowd is whipped up into a frenzy demanding blood. And friends, that's why even as Christians, we must be very careful in making our decisions about truth out of emotion rather than facts and truth, we too can be manipulated. But not only has God given human beings the ability to reason to make good decisions, he has also given them an internal warning system when they're about to make a bad decision. And we call that warning system, the the human conscience. And as I begin reading verse 18 now, watch how it plays itself out in the mind and heart of Pilate. Verse 18, but they cried out altogether, that is the mob, away with this man, and released us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for a revolt that took place in the city and for murder. But Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, you see his conscience is saying, don't do this. Addressed them again. But they kept crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And he said a third time, why? What has this man done? So three times he finds Jesus innocent. Yet, verse 23 tells us, they were insistent. And with loud voices, they made demands that Jesus be crucified and the voices began to prevail. And so Pilate decided to have their demand carried out. He decided to let their demand be carried out. He knew if he didn't release this pressure, it was going to lead to a full scale riot and he'd lose his job. But really, truthfully, what Pilate decided to do at that moment was to violate his own conscience. In April of 1521, a monk by the name of Martin Luther was summoned to the city of Worms before a tribunal called the Diet of Worms because he was accused of heresy by the Roman Catholic Church. He had written the 95 Thesis, remember, criticizing the actions of the church and posted them on the church door in Wittenberg. He had also written books and pamphlets and articles Basically what he was teaching the people is that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. What we preach here every Sunday and what every true evangelical Christian believes. And yet to the Pope, it was heresy and he was a danger to society. He was afraid at first to go, but a friend of his negotiated safe passage. But when he got there, he was called before the court The charges were read and he was commanded to recount, recant under penalty of death. Don't think of Luther as uh, someone who who didn't have any fear. Luther didn't look forward to torture or death any more than we would. And so he asked for a day to think it over and to pray about his decision. He went back to his chambers and he fasted and prayed through the night. He emerged the next day and they said, you may speak and he said, Some very eloquent words, but in summary, he said this, to go against one's conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. Luther refused to recant because he knew to violate his own conscience was more dangerous than anything the court could do to him. Pilate unfortunately didn't have such resolve. Pilate under pressure bent to the will of the people and violated his conscience. And so for the remainder of our time this morning, I want us to look at the human conscience, the reality of the conscience, uh, the role of the conscience. And uh, ultimately we're going to see uh, the remedy for a guilty conscience. So so first let's take our Bibles now and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter two. I can't tell you how excited I am about starting our first study of the book of Romans next fall. I'm already preparing for that and being reminded of the wonderful, great truths. For example, in chapter one, we find out how the world got into such a mess. We also find in the book of Romans, God's plan for redeeming the lost. He explains to us in chapter one, that God has revealed himself in a number of ways to humanity. One way is through nature, we call that uh, common grace we can look at a beautiful sunset and know we didn't make that. God reveals his power and his genius of creativity and all of that. He's also given through Israel the law, the Mosaic law. But we know not every culture has the law. And so does that mean that those cultures which don't have the written Mosaic law are exempt from sinfulness and guilt? Paul says this in Romans 2 verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So it's just as Paul says, we can see in nature what God has made in his divine power, we are without excuse, that God has written on the heart, the conscience, he calls it, of every human being, his law. Now we can take this as you travel internationally, you go to any culture on earth and you'll find that historically their prohibitions and their laws are very similar to the Mosaic law. It's illegal to kill a person. It's illegal to steal in most cultures. God wrote that on their heart and they were born with that knowledge of of right or wrong. This is the conscience. that English word conscience is taken two syllables, con-science, con meaning with, science meaning knowledge. It's speaking of the inner workings of the human heart and the human mind. If you were to ask for a definition, the conscience is defined as the human instinct or principle, which causes feelings of guilt when we violate it and feelings of well-being and pleasure when our actions and words conform to our own values. So the human instinct that causes feelings of guilt or joy, depending on our actions, basically any kindergartner would define the conscience as the ability to discern right from wrong. And God has written that on the human heart. Pilate had a conscience. It's not just Christians that have a conscience. We're not talking about the indwelling presence of the spirit. We'll get to that. Every human in every culture has a conscience. Look what he said in Romans two, when the Gentiles, the pagans, Pilate was not a Christian. He was a man who worshiped the emperor. That's what got him in trouble with the Jews as he had graven images brought in to Jerusalem who do not have the law, have a law written in their hearts. And so here's the irony. Here's Pilate, a man who is a pagan and an idolater seems to have a more active and a healthier conscience than the 70 most pious Jews in Israel. He had to almost beg them not to commit murder. And not only that, the Lord graciously sometimes puts other people in our life to help with her conscience. We're not told here in Luke, but in the other gospels, we're told that Pilate's wife came to him and begged him to have nothing to do with Jesus. Her conscience was quickened. And with apologies to Martin Luther, who says it's not safe to violate conscience, men, it's also not safe to ignore your wife. And so he did though, he ignored his conscience and his wife and made a horrible mistake. Now the word conscience is used 29 times in our English translations. In the Old Testament, it's equated, as I said, to the heart, the inner workings of man, but both the Old and New Testament testify to the fact of the reality of the human conscience. So we've established, I hope now that we all have a conscience The question is, what does the conscience do? Well, Paul says in Romans two, it either accuses us or excuses us. That is when we take an action, a sued or a clear conscience tells us it was the right action. And when feelings of guilt arise from an action, it condemns us, it tells us it was wrong. But I think the best analogy that i found in my study to the human conscience is an internal warning system. We all have them if we drive a car. I can remember being in college and driving an old hand-me-down car and uh, had all sorts of systemic problems in it. And I had no money to fix any of those systemic problems. And every time a new warning light came on, I took a little piece of black electrical tape and just put that right over the light and pretended it wasn't there. Well, the conscience is like that for the human heart. It's a warning light, and it says you're about to have some real problems here if you don't change, if you don't correct this. We know this from the human body, from biology. In the Bible, there are a number of people who are described as having the disease of leprosy. And leprosy is a particularly terrible disease. It's not what many people think it is, because when we see pictures of people who are suffering from leprosy, they often have ears or noses missing, fingers that have been removed. And we tend to think that that must be a symptom of leprosy. That's not the case at all. Leprosy is noted for atrophy of the pain receptors in the nervous system. Can you think of how many times in the past year you have touched your hand to a hot stove and your brain signaled your hand to remove it quickly before it was seriously damaged? or you took a drink of coffee that was too hot and you instantly pull it away from your mouth before you did damage to your esophagus. People with leprosy don't have that warning system. And so they're constantly harming themselves unintentionally because they lack that warning system. So the conscience is not a bad thing. It's a gift of God to all humanity to keep us from destroying our lives. But that's not how modern sociologists view it, unfortunately there's two prevailing views about the human conscience. No one that I have read denies its existence. They just have different explanations for it. One modern theory says that the human conscience is a vestige of our pre-evolutionary cells. (laughs) They would compare it to the human appendix. We don't know what it does, but it must've had some purpose back years ago when our ancestors walked on their knuckles and it's just hung around. Well, we don't believe in evolution here, do we? We believe God made man in his his image. He gave him a conscious and a consciousness. And uh, so we reject that theory. Another theory that's very popular among humanists today is that the conscience is a social construct, that our ancestors made it up to keep people in line. Remember, that's what they said about marriage, that men wanting to subjugate women came up with this concept of marriage, which they were ruled over the family. And that's not what the Bible teaches about marriage, that it was God's idea, it was a gift to humanity. Similarly, the conscience is God's idea and it's a gift to humanity and it's a good gift. But what the sociologists and the humanists have trouble explaining is if the conscience is a vestige of our pre-evolutionary selves, or it's something that was forced upon us by our ancestors, why does it make us feel guilty? Why can't we escape it, even in this modern, technologically savvy world? And so what do people do to escape the guilt that their conscience causes them? Well, many retreat to drugs and alcohol to silence or muffle the feelings of guilt. Others pay therapists thousands of dollars a year to tell them that uh, guilt is not good, it's not real. As I said a few weeks ago, I'm convinced that for the most part, people feel guilty because they are guilty. And could it be that the conscience is God's way of revealing that truth? But even with our conscience, as good as it is, we must be careful because our conscience has restrictions. What I mean by that, the restrictions of the conscience are its limitations. The apostle Paul, declared in the book of Acts chapter 24, that his conscience had to be managed. He said, I strive to keep a clear conscience. It's not that the conscience is installed. It's in perfect working condition and all you have to do is, is follow it. We have to work to keep our conscience clear and healthy. He used the word for great exertion. I strive to keep a clear conscience. The Bible indicates that our conscience must be nourished upon truth that if we starve our conscience from a standard of truth, then it can't be trusted. Of course, what is, according to the the Bible, the perfect standard of truth itself? Thy word is truth. Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. The word of God is that plumb line we've talked about in the past. It's that perfectly square and plumb standard that is immovable, that never changes. And so if we will feed our conscience on the word of God consistently, it can be trusted. But if we don't do those things, the conscience can be corrupted. That's exactly what Paul told one of his protégés, Titus, in Titus one fifteen, that the conscience can become corrupted. It can be perverted and polluted by what you feed it with. If you feed your mind and your conscience with filth, your conscience will be polluted. But I'm afraid it's even worse than that. Paul wrote his other protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, and said it is possible that through repeated sin, that the conscience can actually be silenced altogether. He called it searing the conscience, that the conscience can be seared as with a hot iron. We live in Texas. Some of you are farmers enough yet to know that you brand a calf in the spring causes a scar there. And that scar over time builds up and it becomes totally insensitive to pain. It's seared with a hot iron. Paul says through repeated rejection of truth and repeated violation of our conscience, it can be callous to the point where it no longer can tell right from wrong. And I've met some people like that, haven't you? The conscience in the Christian must be subordinate to the word of God. The word is the ultimate standard, not our conscience. Paul knew that. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, remember Paul's writing to this church at Corinth, and they were having a mess of a time. And one of their problems is that the church had been divided into factions. Some were saying, I'm of Paul. Some were saying, I'm of Apollos. Some I'm Cephas. And Paul writes and says, look, let me talk about myself for a moment. I know of no thing against me." I think Paul's being brutally honest. He couldn't think of any unconfessed sins. He couldn't think of any false motive for why he was preaching the gospel. But then he said this, I know of nothing against myself, yet by this this I am not acquitted. Paul knew his own heart, a human heart, which he said is comprised of a body of death enough to say that he can't completely be sure that his motives are pure. Only God can be the judge of that finally. So what does the conscience do? Well, I read this week an analogy by a pastor named Colin Smith. I thought was excellent. He said a good conscience, a healthy conscience is like a good alarm clock. We all have them in our home. By the way, you're going to need it next week because the time changes. What does the alarm clock do? He says it does two things. Number one, a good alarm clock stays quiet when you should be asleep. And secondly, a good alarm clock makes noise when you should be awake. That's right. That's what a good conscience, a healthy conscience does. When you're following the Lord and you're doing what is right, your conscience will not give you feelings of guilt. Instead it'll give you feelings of peace. On the other hand, when you're following your own way or you're violating your conscience, you have an inner disquietness, I call it. It's noise. It's telling you, watch out. You're about to make a horrible mistake. But even then the Bible gives examples of people who had an overactive conscience, even Christians. That is, they were paralyzed from serving the Lord for fear. They were going to make a bad decision. You know, people like that too. Paul did. He talked about some Christians where he was serving who had a a great problem with the fact that he and some others were eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. You know, that the sacrificial system in the pagan temples was big business. People would come and bring their animals. and, And then they would take the meat from those animals down to the local market and sell it by the pound. And Paul, like many of us, liked a good steak. And he apparently, and some other Christians were shopping at these markets and others saw them there and were scandalized by it and were hurt by the fact that their conscience would not allow them to eat that meat, not because it was informed by the word of God. Paul's conscience was informed by the word of God. He knew, for example, that those idols were nothing. He knew that the Bible taught that God is one, that these things were just stones and gold and silver and had no power with them inherently at all. But Paul also knew that whether the conscience was perfectly healthy or not, to violate one's conscience is a sin. And so he didn't want to cause anyone else to violate their conscience, even if he didn't hold to the same positions. And so he said this, do you remember? That if eating meat will harm my brother, I'll eat no more meat the rest of my life. He was so sensitive to other's conscience, that he would not help anyone to violate their conscience. So that's the conscience, its role and its reality. And now finally, let's see the remedy for a guilty conscience. All those things are interesting facts, at least I hope you think they're interesting that we've said about the conscience. But if you're sitting here today and you have a guilty conscience, it's not a pleasant sensation. And so your question likely is, "How, how do I get rid of this guilty conscience? Well, there's only one way, according to the Bible, and that is the forgiveness of Almighty God. See, people try all sorts of ways to diminish their conscience or get rid of it, to um, remove those pains of guilt. We mentioned drugs and alcohol. There's one more way we haven't mentioned, and we see it in the Gospel of Luke. You Remember how Judas responded to his own conscience? After Jesus was arrested, he felt so guilty about it that he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the Sanhedrin and tried to give it back. They said, we don't want it. And Judas went out and took his own life. He thought he could silence his conscience through suicide. I've been talking to a lot of our law enforcement officials over this last year, and they tell me that the suicide rate in our area is through the roof. You don't hear a lot about it in the news, but it's true in every municipality that I've spoken with the leaders, including Keller, Texas. That's never the right way to quiet a guilty conscience. I want to share with you the right way. Let's close with this. Let's turn to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 3. And this is before God gave a conscience to Adam and Eve. Remember they were born in a state of innocence. They didn't need a conscience. God created the heaven and the earth and he saw it and it was good. And his highest creation was man made in his own image. He gave to man a helpmate, woman, and they were to prosper, be creative, manage this garden that the Lord had given them. They had one prohibition. They were not to eat of the fruit of the tree that the Lord had placed in the midst of the garden. And of course, you know the story. Satan came in the form of a serpent. He tempted Eve and she ate of that forbidden fruit. She took to her husband, Adam, and he ate. Their eyes were open. Verse seven says, "'Then the eyes of both of them were open "'and they knew that they were naked, "'and they sewed fig leaves together "'and made themselves loin coverings.'" That's what humans do. When they have feelings of guilt, they try to cover it up. This is a pitiful attempt by Adam and Eve to cover up their guilt. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Not that he didn't know. Remember he called them all together, the serpent, the woman, and the man. By the way, they all blamed each other. And God pronounced curses on each of them. Remember um, the serpent had to go on the belly in the dust of the earth, all of his days, the man had to labor hard to make a living and the woman's pain in childbirth was multiplied. But look at verse 16, there's hope in the midst of the curse. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. But don't forget what he said in verse 15 and I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, her seed shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the first telling of the gospel. This is God the Father declaring hope for those with a guilty conscience. It's not by covering it up with fig leaves or drugs or alcohol or suicide. The answer to a guilty conscience is a Savior who at that point was yet to come. That seed of woman who would crush Satan on the head and put to an end of death and hell and the grave. This is the first telling of the gospel. We fast forward. God chooses one man out of Ur of the Chaldees, Abram, and he makes a covenant with him that through him, all the nations of the world are gonna be blessed. That is through him, the Messiah, the savior would come. And he gave to Abraham's descendants, the Mosaic law. And he gave to them the sacrificial system. And every time a lamb was killed, as Thousands were when Jesus was in Passover, uh, was in Jerusalem that week for Passover. Every time the blood was spilled, it was a reminder to the people of their guilt and the hope of ultimate forgiveness through a Savior. And so if you're sitting here today and you've heard about your conscience and you know it's true and you have a guilty conscience, my advice to you is to run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Don't try to cover it up. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to manipulate it or minimize it. View your conscience and your feelings of guilt as a gift from God to drive you to the Savior. You're here today. You might say, what if I have a seared conscience? What if I'm one of those people Paul mentioned that can't even tell right from wrong anymore? I've sinned so much. There's hope for you. If you're here today, you've corrupted your conscience through pornography or all sorts of external inputs that cause your conscience to be unhealthy. There is hope for you because it is the Holy Spirit's work to activate your conscience. Jesus told Nicodemus to be saved, you must be born again. We call that in theological terms regeneration, all things becoming new. And when the scripture says that when we're saved, all things become new, that includes your conscience. When you're saved by the miracle work of the Holy Spirit, he reactivates your conscience. Jesus said of the work of the Spirit in John chapter 16 through 8, when the Spirit comes, he's going to do three things. He's going to tell you about sin, that is your personal guilt before God, his righteousness as opposed to your guilt, and judgment to come. He's going to convict you that all those things are true. You're guilty, he's righteous, and you're deserving of hell, but he's also going to open your blind eyes to the truth and grant you faith and repentance, which is the only way to have a freedom from a guilty conscience is to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So what does the apostle John say? If we confess our sins, that is we agree with God's assessment of ourselves that we are guilty, We stop trying to cover up the guilt. We stop trying to get rid of the guilt through human means. We simply say, you're right. I am guilty. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to what? Forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only biblical way to have a clear conscience is to be cleansed by the saving blood of Jesus. What about you? you tried for decades to silence your guilty conscience? Have you sinned so much you can't even hear your conscience anymore? Is your conscience corrupted? Come to Jesus. Come to him on his terms. Don't offer him anything you have. You have nothing. Come to him with empty hands and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He'll forgive your sins. He'll cleanse your conscience, and he'll help you to make those decisions which are right before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the gift of the human conscience. Every culture, every people group, every man, woman, boy and girl is born with a basic knowledge of right and wrong. And to that basic knowledge of right and wrong, you've given us the Bible. No, it doesn't answer every question we could possibly have, but it gives us everything we need to know to have a relationship with you, to be saved, to be born again. Father, I pray for Christians here today that we would feed upon the Word, that we would constantly confess our sins as you expose them to our consciousness, that our conscience could be clear and healthy, and we could have that peace that passes human comprehension, Father, I pray for a lost person here today who maybe have a guilty conscience. Thank you for that. Thank you that you're still dealing with them, Lord. You haven't given up on them. Yeah, Father, we know a guilty conscience is a burden. It's painful. They may be tempted to deal with it in other ways. I pray, Lord, that they would deal with it in a biblical way, that they'd run to Jesus, agree with your assessment of their sin, confess their sins, and receive as a gift salvation and forgiveness, through grace alone, as Luther said. Father, I pray for a person here listening today, maybe in a prison cell somewhere. Their conscience has been seared to the point where they would just as soon kill someone as shake their hand. They no longer even feel any pains of guilt when they do wrong. Father, you show them that there's hope that your spirit is able to overcome the most hardened of hearts and to make them a new person. Father, I pray you do that many times over around the world today, not for our sake, but for the glory of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.